Hello, this is your host, Carolyn Mormon, and welcome to a new episode of the Roamings and Reflections series within the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policies Contours podcast. This series highlights recent trips to the field, both domestic and international, made by New Line staff members, government officials, and humanitarian practitioners who speak on the geopolitical analysis originating from their timely field findings. For this episode, I'll be joined by New Lines' senior analyst, Riley Motor, to discuss her recent trip to Jordan and how this trip has impacted the way she thinks of important topics regarding the MENA, Middle East, North Africa region. At New Lines, Riley focuses on state fragility in Africa. Prior to joining the Institute, she worked in the United States Institute of Peace's Middle East and North African Department. She also previously worked at the American Enterprise Institute's Critical Threats Project, where she researched non-state actors in the Sahel. Riley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Carolyn. Good to be here. Tim, again, walk us through your recent trip to Jordan. Why were you there and what did you see and experience on the ground? Yeah. So why did we go to Jordan? Mainly because Jordan is a kind of gateway to the Middle East. There's a lot of things happening in Jordan that have direct implications or represent regional issues that are faced both in the Middle East and in North Africa. Jordan is a pretty unique country in that it has an incredibly strong partnership with the United States, but it's also a country that's struck by major regional issues such as the Syrian refugee crisis, water, climate change, and poverty. Currently, when we were there right after the royal wedding, which was really fun, there's lots of posters around of the new couple and things like that. We were really lucky that we got to do kind of a tour of the entire country. Started in Amman, spent about four days in Amman, and then went south to Aqaba and then worked our way back up. One thing that we noticed as soon as we left Amman was just the severe poverty that people are living in, especially in an area called the Fjord, which is mainly refugees, refugees who've settled there over the last couple of decades who are working in their fertile farmlands. That being said, despite challenges, it's a very rich and vibrant culture, and we really enjoyed our time there. So I want to start with one of the first issues that you mentioned that Jordan is currently facing, which is the large number of refugees it hosts. Jordan is the second largest number of refugees per capita worldwide after Lebanon, with the largest number coming from neighboring Syria. We've seen a regional effort by countries such as Lebanon, by countries such as Turkey, to start to repatriate Syrian refugees to Syria, in the case of Turkey, somewhat forcefully. A majority of human rights organizations say this is illegal and wrong, as Syria does not have the conditions on the ground to support these refugees coming back and would be unsafe for their well-being. How did your time in Jordan lead you to analyze this issue of migration? And have you identified ways that the U.S. and its international partners can better support Jordan's hosting of this massive amount of refugees? So this is a really complex issue. One thing that I do want to point out here is kind of globally the different treatment of refugees depending on where they're from. Now, I don't want to take away anything from the Ukrainian refugees because what they are going through is absolutely awful. But if you look at the way that Ukrainian refugees were welcomed into Europe during the during the initial invasion in 2022, it is a stark contrast to the way refugees are treated in the Middle East and North Africa. Particularly, Syrian refugees are socially ostracized. They are not welcomed into traditional senses of the economy. It's so bad. In some areas of Jordan, they're not even allowed to attend the same schools at the same time as Jordanian citizens. So, you know, one key struggle here is how do we properly integrate people? How do we integrate people so that they can benefit from the systems, but also do not burden societies? Obviously, there is financial, economic and social constraints that come with hosting refugees. That being said, UNHCR has been actively working on four key issue areas in Jordan. 
The first one, and my personal one that I think is the most important, is proper documentation. This means providing passports, birth certificates, legal documents with their names on it so they can prove who they are. Last year, UNHCR provided almost 500,000 people with proper documentation, and this assures that they can get basic services as a refugee. The next one is legal support. This kind of goes hand in hand with proper documentation. A lot of times these refugees don't have the legal outlets to obtain these documents, and they're unable to get these documents through the embassies for whatever reasons. Thirdly, they're working on internal capacity building with Jordan's humanitarian resource groups, faith-based groups, government agencies, and civil society. This is a lot of trauma-based training. How do you support refugees that are coming in? How do you provide them with services they need? As well as just kind of trying to work towards some level of integration. And then the last one is just providing basic cash support for education, protection, basic health services, and needs as these refugees start integrating. So a key challenge for Syrian refugees in Jordan is that they don't have work authority. Syrian refugees do not have the ability to work in any sense of a traditional economy, meaning where you fill out your tax forms, you get a job um, that's registered with the Jordanian government. So this leads them finding other ways to support themselves. Toward the end of our trip, we were in Wadi Musa, which is a village outside of Petra, and we sat down for dinner at a local restaurant. We struck up a conversation with the manager and after about you know, 30 or so minutes of this conversation, it came out that he was working under the table as a Syrian refugee. He was living in the restaurant and sending as much money as he could to his family. However, returning home, like you, you know, mentioned, is, was not an option for him due to cost, safety concerns, and so forth. His family has currently been spread out all over the Middle East and Europe. This man who's working in the restaurant did not have any form of proper documentation, said he could not obtain a passport or any other official documentation to be able to go and visit his family living outside Syria. One thing that the U.S. international community should do is work with the Jordanian government to support refugees in increasing documentation, but also increasing work authority assistance. Jordan has a major unemployment problem, and often due to cultural norms, Jordanian citizens don't work jobs in the service industry, and refugees usually unofficially fill these jobs. So if the Jordanian government were to provide work authority to these refugees, it would not only uplift the refugees quality of life by providing official forms of work avenues without making it so difficult for them to find work, but it would also bolster the economy through taxes. Obviously, this is easier said than done, and there's levels of cultural and social and political complexity, but I think this would be a really good first step, or not necessarily first step, but a step to accompany everything else that's being done. I really appreciated how you outlined the difficulties that the Jordanian government and Jordanian society as a whole is facing, but also the need for them to take further steps, like you said, such as providing work authority to refugees to allow these refugees to further assimilate. I want to turn next to another issue that is very key to Jordan and the region, which is counterterrorism. As we know, Jordan is a very important counterterrorism partner and a security partner to the U.S. in the Middle East, largely because it shares borders with two very high-impact countries of Iraq and Syria. While you were on the ground, did you have any new insight into how the Jordanian government, Jordanian institutions, or even the people of Jordan view this struggle and any areas that they remain concerned about today with counterterrorism? This does tie in a little bit to this kind of extensive refugee population. There's a lot of security concerns that come with that just because so many of the people coming in from Syria are undocumented. And there's not a lot of forms of verification on, on where these people are coming from. 
That being said, terrorism is a very sensitive topic in Jordan. They see the effects of ISIS and al-Qaeda groups in their countries through this flux of refugees, the mass poverty, but also just general sensitivity. Jordan was hit very hard with several terrorist attacks during the height of ISIS. There's also been several Jordanian citizens who rose through the ranks of al-Qaeda leadership, which Jordan is very aware of and very sensitive to. So one thing, though, is that Jordan is currently a part of the U.S.-led coalition to defeat ISIS and maintains a very close relationship to the U.S. The FY 2020 budget for defense assistance in Jordan was around $27 billion. In addition to that, most of the tactile equipment, including planes, ships, and ground vehicles, were provided by the U.S. government. I remember we just had flown in, and a giant passenger jet that was U.S.-made flew over us. And I was like, wait, is that the U.S. military? Is that the Jordanian military? Which one was it? Because they are identical. But that being said, Jordan is, you know, very, very aware and very concerned about the resurgence of ISIS. They've often referred to this war on ISIS as the next Third World War. They take counterterrorism very seriously, and this is why they've been so restrictive on Syrian refugees, because of past legacies of attacks and security concerns. So this kind of brings me back to our trip down to Aqaba. So on Jordan's southern border is Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. It's a one-hour ferry ride across the Red Sea. Sinai is an ISIS stronghold, having been active in the areas for the last decade. Egypt has been making progress in mitigating the threat of terrorism. However, Egypt has recently been pulled to its border with Sudan with the increasing stress that the refugees have placed on Egypt's security forces. So obviously, Jordan is becoming very concerned with Egypt's move away from Sinai and toward the Sudan border, as this might reverse progress that has been made in the Sinai Peninsula. It's like you forecasted the direction of my next question, but I wanted to kind of transfer us from mainland Middle East and more into North Africa and focus on a topic that we've discussed previously in a past Contours episode, which is the Sudanese crisis and how it's impacting the North Africa region. In your last episode with us, you went into detail about how Egypt is facing massive flows of refugees from Sudan and how Egypt is struggling to deal with them, kind of like Jordan is struggling to deal with the large amounts of refugees it currently hosts. Do you have any updates for us about how the Sudanese conflict is affecting the North Africa region, how Egypt is dealing with these refugees right now, and are these flows leaving from Egypt to go anywhere else at the moment? Sure, it's a great question and and a rather timely update. The Sudan conflict that's been raging since April 2023 has gotten progressively more violent. There have been reports from leading human rights organizations such as Amnesty International indicating more crimes are taking place, including rape extrajudicial killings, forced disappearances, and the direct targeting of civilians. The war in Sudan has resulted in about 3.3 million people being displaced. Of that, about 600,000 have fled to Egypt. The majority of refugees in Egypt are on the border. However, they are starting to migrate north. But since the beginning of the conflict, Egypt has made it increasingly more difficult for Sudanese to pass safely. They require visa requirements now. They're requiring people to be transported via bus or vehicle. They're no longer allowed to transport on foot. And they've sent their counterterrorism police to the border. And this is in response to concerns of increasing ISIS and al-Qaeda activity on the border region, which has been historically present in that region, but also worries of increased organized crime, drug trafficking, human smuggling, and human trafficking. Though these concerns are valid and are common when we see mass conflicts break out like this and you see a mass migration of people, 
these people are incredibly vulnerable. And on top of, you know, Egypt's concerns, Egypt's counterterrorism police have been actively causing violence on the border as well. It is not a safe place to be. Thanks, Riley. I really appreciated you drawing Egypt into this whole puzzle and pulling on some threads that Egypt has been using to make it more difficult for Sudanese refugees, a little bit unfairly, as you pointed out, such as with the use of the counterterrorism police. You said 600,000 have fled to Egypt, but there are millions being displaced by this active violence going on in Sudan. Where is everybody else going and what kind of implications is this causing? That's a really good question. So of the 3.3 million, quite a few of them are displaced internally. However, people are also fleeing to Chad, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Tunisia, and some into Libya as well. Obviously, this entire region is incredibly destabilized right now. Chad has been constantly fighting Boko Haram issues and their own democratic issues as well. Ethiopia has had a massive conflict in Tigray that is only being exacerbated by this influx of refugees. Tunisia has incredibly discriminatory practices toward refugees and toward migrants. So all of this has the potential to metastasize and further destabilize an already very fragile region. Another thing to consider here is the implication that this is going to have on Europe. 600,000 people into Egypt may not seem like a lot, but 3.3 million people being displaced is quite significant. Though in different countries, this is going to push migration into Europe and many, many more refugees are going to be getting onto boats that are not suitable, not stable and crossing the Mediterranean, hoping to make land. This is a, a massive humanitarian issue that I think Europe and, and partnership with the United States needs to be paying more attention to, because as these refugees are, are desperately getting on boats, oftentimes they don't make landfall. We've seen multiple catastrophes earlier this year where 800 people have drowned in the Mediterranean. So. I'm hopeful that the EU, in partnership with maybe the African Union or ECOWAS, can help put plans in place to help these refugees and mitigate the potential dangers that these refugees are facing while trying to get into safe environments and avoid conflict. It's going to be very interesting to watch if and how and when these refugees start to enter Europe through boats, through other means, kind of what social political change that fosters in Europe. We've seen this rise of, I'm thinking of Italy, I'm thinking of Hungary, of more right-wing populist governments that, in Italy's case, tend to be a little more harsh against immigration and kind of what this larger flow of refugees from Sudan will cause. I want to end on bringing this Sudan crisis into more of a regional look once again. We've seen attempts by regional powers, I'm thinking of the Egyptian-led initiative that happened in Cairo to bring countries together to solve this conflict. Do you see these as succeeding? What are the reasons behind these moves? Is it just wanting to end the conflict? Is it wanting to buff up their diplomatic prowess? And then what leverage do you think these regional powers have to get the two sides to stop? Sure. Again, very good question, Carolyn. So July 13th, the Egyptians launched a summit to end the war in Sudan. They invited, I think, about seven of the neighboring countries in hope of strategizing a way to resolve the subsequent fighting between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces. Egypt had basically three top line concerns in this summit. One was to find a way to impose a ceasefire. Two was to halt all cross-border support for the RSF. A key component here is that Egypt has been strategically aligned with the SAF for years. They have been tackling the Ethiopian Grand Renaissance Dam together, as well as 
coordinating, securing that border region between Sudan and Egypt against terrorism and against um, organized crime. So that leads me to my third point. You know, one of Egypt's key points for this was reducing that risk of organized crime and terrorism. It's incredibly common in this region. They've spent decades kind of trying to eradicate it, which has cost them significant resources and manpower. And this is something that they're taking very seriously. However, this summit, like the ones before it in Jeddah, have been largely unsuccessful. They are unable to enforce a ceasefire. The sanctions are, are not discouraging either side. And I don't necessarily see, see these summits being successful. In the last um, the last point I want to make is that I do think that the move for Egypt to host a summit, though, shows how desperate they are to put a halt to the fighting in Sudan and limit these ongoing effects. Egypt is struggling right now. They're at 37 percent inflation. They're dealing with severe drought, climate related issues, poverty, as well as some political unrest. This conflict in Sudan and the influx of refugees is only making those things worse. So I think Egypt will be a key partner and, and moving toward any form of resolution. However, the summits that are taking place first in Saudi Arabia, now in Egypt, are a good starting point, but they're not producing actionable items and not producing a pathway forward. Though these seven neighboring countries were largely in agreement on these three initiatives, they seem to not be able to enforce them. I was just going to add one final point here, which was both the RSF and the SAF have international backers through the UAE, through Russia, through paramilitary groups such as Wagner. So this is a complex problem that is going to need more than just countries demanding a ceasefire to get involved. I think more pressure needs to be put on Russia, more pressure needs to be put on UAE to stop supporting both of these sides. And I think it's going to be a conflict that we will be watching unfold for a long time as there are external forces involved here that don't really have any kind of motive to stop backing their sides anytime soon. I want to thank you, Riley, for coming on the podcast today. This has been very, very insightful into so many different issues in the region, such as migration, counterterrorism, the Sudanese conflict. To our listeners... You can make sure to subscribe to the podcast on major streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify, so you don't miss any of our new episodes. You can also check out further analysis into geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy at www.newlinesinstitute.org. All the best.